This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for tuning in for another week at the table. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host as always. And we have a familiar face coming back to the show today. We always love to have Dr. Paxson back. He is just about finished his fellowship in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. And we uh, welcome you back to the show, Paxson. Thanks, Kieran. Always a pleasure. So, Paxson, what do you have to serve to us this week on the Rounds Table? Okay, Karen, I'm going to dive in today an article that came out in April in JAMA. I'm presenting a meta-analysis today, and this article is titled Association Between the Use of SGLT2 Inhibitors, GLP-1 Agonists, and DPP-4 Inhibitors with All-Cause Mortality in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes. That's a lot of acronyms. Looks like we are looking at antihyperglycemics and their effectiveness in reducing mortality. All right, well, what is it then, Paxson? What's the bottom line for this meta-analysis? Correct. So I'll start by applauding the authors because this was a pretty monumental effort. But the bottom line for this network meta-analysis is that it included 236 separate randomized control trials and on balance, both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists, but not DP4 inhibitors, were associated with significantly lower all-cause mortality as compared to control groups. I feel like if you reviewed 236 different randomized trials, that in in and of itself should get into some high-ranking journal. But nevertheless, uh, why did you choose this article and why does it end up in JAMA? So, Kieran, as you and I both know, diabetes trials have changed over the past few years away from looking at surrogate endpoints like hemoglobin A1C lowering and looking more towards real-life outcomes or things that matter to patients. And it's uncovered some pretty interesting or unexpected differences, I think, between certain oral hypoglycemic agents that we might not have been aware of in the past. Add to that the proliferation of agents we have to choose from, and the literature really has blown up uh, of late. So some of the new kids on the block, uh, so to speak, in terms of oral hypoglycemics include SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists, and they've actually been shown, as you know, to have mortality benefits in individual trials, which has changed my approach to diabetes management at least, and I think I think a lot of people's approach. However, in spite of all that, there really is minimal data comparing them head-to-head and comparing them against anything other than controls. So that's what led to this large systematic review and meta-analysis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think beyond your own individual practice, Paxson, at least in Canada, the Canadian Diabetes Association has now officially recommended them in addition to metformin for patients with cardiovascular disease, at least for SGL2 inhibitors and GLP-1 uh, agonists. So it seems like this is a spreading practice. And it's also one of these things that has just quietly crept up on me that diabetes care has really undergone a major revolution in the light of all of these new uh, agents, at least since I was a medical student. So uh, I'm sure we'll look back at this one day and say, wow, these were the days when diabetes care changed. Yeah, I'd agree. Half of these medications didn't even exist when we started residency just that short time ago. All right. Well, enough said. What was the design of the study? How did they go about conducting it? So as I mentioned, this was a large meta-analysis. It was a hierarchical network meta-analysis that included any randomized control trial of at least 12 weeks of duration that enrolled patients with type 2 diabetes. Included were comparisons of SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonists, and DPP-4 inhibitors to each other and or to placebo or control groups. 
And just as a very brief primer in network meta-analyses for those who aren't familiar, it's sort of like the premise if A equals B and B equals C, you're able to compare A and C indirectly. And so that's sort of what you're doing by comparing and linking or networking all of these trials together and their various comparisons. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, Kieran, because we're not going to see direct comparisons of these medications anytime soon. So this is a sort of the next best thing. So Paxton, who were the patients in this study? So this study enrolled, as mentioned, there was a, quite a number of trials included. So the inclusion criteria were fairly minimal. Um, adults with type 2 diabetes who were enrolled in oral hypoglycemic trials greater than 12 weeks of duration were really any trial that, that met that criteria was included. Overall, the paper included, as I mentioned, 236 separate RCTs, including just over 175,000 participants uh, comparing any of these three drug classes to each other or to no treatment or placebo. And was there anything in particular about the dosing of these individual drugs in these trials? Yeah, they did point out specifically that the trials had to be ran at market-approved doses, so not exceptionally low or high doses. Okay. Well, that's, again, very impressive work to cover such a huge undertaking. What did they actually seek to measure as their efficacy endpoints? So, as I mentioned, outcomes in diabetes trials have changed away from surrogate outcomes. So they're really going after sort of the bottom line here. Their primary outcome for this meta-analysis was looking at all-cause mortality. And they looked at a number of secondary outcomes, including uh, cardiovascular mortality, heart failure events, myocardial infarctions, unstable angina, and stroke. Okay, and actually on the roundtable, we've talked a little bit about, especially with Mike Fralick, some concerning safety endpoints. And actually yourself also covered a couple trials. Um, what particular adverse uh, outcomes did they look at in the context of these medications? Yeah, you're right. So as an important counterpoint to those, I think, really meaningful primary and secondary outcomes, they did look at safety endpoints. And they looked at these in two different ways. Generally speaking, they looked at what they called adverse events, as well as more specifically at uh, events of hypoglycemia. And then they also, in addition to that, looked at drug-specific safety endpoints. So for SGLT2 inhibitors, that include lower limb amputations, urinary tract infections, and genital infections. For GLP-1 agonists, that included acute pancreatitis and retinopathy. And for DPP-4s, they looked for, again, acute pancreatitis as a safety endpoint. Okay. So I'm intrigued. I can't wait to find out what happens. Tell me, Paxton, what are the results? So... It's really, it, it, it's quite interesting here. So as I mentioned, 236 articles were included. They actually represented a total of 258 drug class comparisons. As some of those papers did compare some of these head to head. It's worth noting that two authors independently reviewed the literature to select out appropriate papers, and there was no disagreements on selection between those two authors that ended up requiring third-party review for appropriateness of, of inclusion. As I mentioned, over 175,000 patients were included when you roll all the trials together, and it represented over 300,000 participant years. So a pretty powerful analysis, I think. Now, one of the things we talk about with meta-analysis is garbage in, garbage out. So tell me about uh, the quality of those trials that they assessed. You're absolutely right, Kieran. And so they went through each of these trials using five accepted pre-specified domains of bias and analyzed each of the trials according to the risk of bias. 44% of the trials were considered low risk of bias across all five domains. Just shy of 25% were considered high risk for attrition bias or higher loss of patients to follow up and how that may affect their outcome. So there was some bias that was included in the trial, but overall, I think a fairly a solid selection of pretty robust papers. 
yeah, almost half of the papers were high quality and it's sort of low risk of bias across all of those domains. Okay, so uh, with respect to the primary outcome of all-cause mortality, what did they find? So in terms of the primary outcome, which again was all-cause mortality, they did see several significant associations. So SGLT2 inhibitors versus control showed an absolute risk reduction in mortality of approximately 1%. So they were significantly associated with decreased mortality. Similarly, GLP agonists versus control also showed a statistically significant decrease in mortality with an absolute risk reduction of about 0.6%, so significant, but maybe not quite as high as SGLT2 inhibitors. DPP4 inhibitors compared to control, no significant decrease in mortality. They went beyond that, though, and they started comparing the agents to one another. So when they compared SGLT2 inhibitors to DPP4 inhibitors, again, you saw an absolute risk reduction in mortality of 0.9%, so a significant drop. And when they compared GLP1 agonists versus DPP4, they also saw a significant decrease in mortality with an absolute risk reduction of 0.5%. Lastly, they looked at SGLT2 inhibitors versus GLP-1 agonists, and there they saw no significant difference in mortality between those two agents. So just to recap, SGLT2s versus control, 1% risk reduction. GLP agonists versus control, 0.6%. SGLT2 versus DPP-4, 0.9%. And GLP-1 versus DPP-4, 0.5%. And what were the trends? Uh, sort of just give us the superficial trends in the secondary outcomes. As you saw, there was quite a number of analyses here and quite a number of outcomes. So I'll just try and break this down to a couple highlights. So when they looked at cardiovascular mortality instead of all-cause mortality, they essentially saw very similar numbers across the board to what they looked at the primary outcome. When they looked at heart failure events, there was a significant decrease with SGLT2 inhibitors with an absolute risk reduction there of about 1%, but with none of the other agents. And when they looked at myocardial infarctions, there was also a significant decrease with SGLT2 inhibitors of about 0.6%. Again, and with regards to the other agents, NMI is no difference. GLP-1 agonists did come out on top when they looked at strokes, but not even all strokes, only non-fatal strokes. And there, compared to control, they did show an absolute risk reduction of 0.3%, but that's a fairly small risk reduction in a subgroup of a secondary outcome. So I'm not sure how much weight you want to put behind that one. And then the last thing that I'll point out is that when they actually looked at drug type, so the specific drugs themselves, instead of these overall classes, these benefits were only really seen with empagliflozin, liraglutide, and exanatide, which do kind of echo those findings of trials like Empareg and later and the ones that we talk about quite a bit on the show. Hmm. So are you suggesting that this is not necessarily a class effect for some of these drugs, but maybe a specific drug effect? Well, that will be one of the questions that I think remains following this trial is, is are the, all these results being driven by a few um, specific trials or can they be considered a class effect? And really, I think that's going to end up being a decision that you have to make for yourself as the treating physician. Okay, Paxton, so let's balance these uh, very impressive and encouraging findings. What were some of the safety outcomes that they found? So I think maybe the most significant safety outcome, but one that's that's not surprising is that all of these agents were associated with increased risk of hypoglycemia compared with control. None worse than one another because they do all lower blood sugars. In terms of specific safety outcomes, SGLT2 inhibitors ended up coming out on top with lower rates of adverse events in general than both of the other classes, whereas GLP-1 agonists actually had the highest rates of dropouts compared to all other groups. 
Lastly, in terms of the, the very, very specific outcomes that they measured for drug classes, SGLT2 inhibitors were associated with increasing general infections, but not with amputations. DPP-4s were associated with an increased risk of acute pancreatitis, and GLP-1s had no specific adverse events associated with them. And yet they have higher rates of dropouts in the GLP-1 agonist trials, suggesting that there's some sort of intolerability, even if it's not a specifically an adverse event to those drugs. Yeah, yeah. I think that was mostly driven by GI uh, side effects, not, not those specific... Yeah, not the specific safety outcomes that they were they were measuring. All right, so what are your thoughts then? Uh, sort of give us the interpretation. So my overall take on this, I mean, I think this is the best data we have right now comparing these drugs head to head. A couple points to make. One is that meta-analyses are often regarded as sort of the quote unquote highest level of evidence out there. But I do like to remind everyone that they do, they come with their own limitations. As you mentioned, there's the idea of garbage in, garbage out, which is always something to consider. And we always have to remember that when we lump all of these trials together, that increase in power that we get from that is offset by some loss in granularity of the data. But that being said, these are pretty interesting and I think compelling results. I think one key limitation that we already talked about is the assumption of a class effect across each drug class. And we don't really know whether these are all be driven by specific drug effects or whether we can expand that to a class. So again, that's something that you'll have to decide for yourself. But And lastly, I would like to point out that even though DPP-4s come out kind of on the bottom on this, that they still lower blood glucose and that these are all relatively short trials, and we're talking about years to decades. I still think there's there's likely a role for DPP-4 inhibitors, and I do believe that they're, they still do provide some benefit. All right, so we've thrown all these drugs into the diabetic soup. What are the main learning points that you want listeners to take away from this very impressive undertaking uh, in this meta-analysis study? So I think the main takeaway point here is is that conclusion that both SGLT2 inhibitors as well as GLP-1 agonists both come out on top in terms of overall mortality compared to other oral hypoglycemic agents. And when you dig down into the subgroup data here, it really does look like SGLT2 inhibitors probably have the highest risk benefit ratio in terms of in terms of maximizing those mortality benefits and minimizing side effects which i am encouraged by because i do like sglt2 inhibitors i like the fact that they're oral and not injected and it's going to reaffirm my practice although interestingly i know that we do see the potential for oral glp1 agonists coming out in the near future so stay tuned to see if that's a game changer Well, uh, let's move on now to the study that I chose for the week. Thanks for covering that, Paxson. I think we learned a lot, and it'll have some impacts on my practice overall. So the study that I chose for this week was to look at, I guess we should say relook at the effect of renal denervation on blood pressure control. And this is specifically in the setting of uh, use of antihypertensives, which makes this uh, particular trial somewhat unique in that sense. So that's interesting, Kieran, because I got to say, I thought we'd shut the door on this. So I was really curious to see what comes out of this article. Yeah, so that's actually one of the reasons why I did choose it. But let me tell you about the bottom line first. So this is actually just the report of the preliminary findings for this single blinded randomized trial. And it's of the first 80 of 467 enrolled patients who had uncontrolled hypertension. And that was despite the use of up to three different antihypertensive medications. And what it found was that those who underwent renal denervation demonstrated a clinically significant reduction in their blood pressure control at six months compared to those who actually underwent sham procedure 
and interestingly, they did not find any counterbalancing uh, major safety concerns. Okay, so that's really interesting, Kieran, and that's something that would change my practice. But I got to say, I can't recall ever seeing preliminary findings from an interim analysis published like this. Yeah, and published in The Lancet, no less. And that's certainly what caught my attention. As you said, I thought the door on renal denervation for blood pressure control was closed and that we'd sort of said it doesn't really do much. Uh, There's no established benefit. And then I saw this trial, in fact, two trials published in The Lancet about renal denervation. And that made me think, well, there's something's changed. Let's find out what it's what it's all about. There actually have been a completion of 25 prior trials in the examination of the effect of renal denervation. And despite all of that, there is no established benefit in uh, blood pressure control. However, the technique has changed over time as we've uh, had a, gained a greater understanding of renal anatomy and where the nervous system is within that. This trial offers an opportunity to update that. As well, uh, one of the or many criticisms of the prior trials is that they haven't really used quote-unquote real-world practice uh, in investigating the effectiveness of these treatments. And so this trial called the Spiral uh, OnMed trial um, is uh, looking really at patients with uncontrolled hypertension despite the use of medications and what the effect of renal denervation does in the context of continued use of antihypertensive medications. Okay, gotcha. So so not only has our technique maybe changed or evolved here, but also the way we perform these studies has, has also evolved over time. So with that, then tell me, let's dive into the details a little bit more and tell me a little bit more about the methods here. What was the design of this study? So uh, it's a multi-center but single-blinded. The patients were blinded, not the uh, uh, interventionalists, although the assessors who managed the patients following actually were blinded. And it was a randomized sham-controlled trial that occurred in 25 centers in North America, in Europe, Australia, and Japan. Now, they included patients who were adults with uncontrolled hypertension. That was defined as an office blood pressure of between 150 to 180 millimeters of mercury, uh, over greater than 90 millimeters of mercury. Uh, as well, uh, they, they went on to, to measure a mean ambulatory blood pressure, and if your systolic mean was uh, between 140 to 170, uh, and you were on between one and three medications at 50% or more of the maximum dose, then you were included in this study. And interestingly, they actually measured adherence to antihypertensives using serum drug levels. Ah, so that's an interesting addition to this study then. And tell us specifically then what were the interventions that they did? Right. So all patients underwent a screening angiogram, if you can believe it or not. And then they were randomized to undergo either renal denervation or sham. So this was sort of, you know, randomization was an allocation to each arm was given to the interventionalist on the table, so to speak. Now, as I mentioned, blinded trial staff conducted follow-up with the patients and the patients were blinded. And they actually kept patients on the table for at least 20 minutes Uh, so that they weren't, you know, unblinded to the arm that they were in. And this was kind of neat. You could not actually change the dosing or the types of antihypertensive medications you were on after randomization up until the six-month time period when blood pressure was being measured unless they had some sort of escape criteria where if your, you know, blood pressure was really out of control, like above 180 or really, really low, and it was sort of less than 150 and you're symptomatic, then those changes could be made. But 
that was kind of a neat design element too. Hmm. So I, there are shades of the orbital trial here. I think we covered previously these sham angiograms. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Well, awesome. So tell us then a little bit about the outcomes that they're measuring. So the primary outcome was the change in the participants' baseline blood pressure at six months, and that change was measured based on 24 ambulatory blood pressure measurement, not single office measurements. And it actually what they did was the day before they underwent that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, they actually had directly observed therapy to make sure that they took their blood pressure medication at least the day before they had their outcome measured. All patients underwent serum testing uh, to measure drug levels, and that gave them an idea about uh, adherence, at least some surrogate of adherence for them. And then there was multiple safety endpoints. They looked at uh, all-cause death, the development of end-stage renal disease, if patients developed new renal artery stenosis following these procedures, or if they had uh, serious embolic or ischemic events. Lots of attention to detail here then. I think so, yeah, very well conducted. So tell us what the main findings were. So the population itself consisted of, uh, your typical patient was a 54-year-old male, BMI of 31. About a fifth, so 20% were smokers. Most were on three medications, and those were typically a diuretic, a calcium channel blocker, and an ACE inhibitor. So I think a pretty typical patient that you would see in any medicine clinic or any clinic that's looking after hypertensive individuals. Probably a few more medications than you might normally see in the general population, but again, this is a difficult-to-control population. Baseline blood pressures in these individuals, despite these medications, were 152 on 97 of millimeters of mercury. So suboptimally controlled. Now there were differences in proportion of patients with obstructive sleep apnea. You actually found higher numbers in the sham arm. This is probably a consequence of just the fact that we have low numbers at this point in this preliminary. So it's it's just a random chance that they're, they're different. But actually that difference in and of itself would potentially favor the intervention, given that obstructive sleep apnea is one thing that drives uh, hypertension. As far as the primary findings, so in the renal denervation group, they saw a 9 millimeter over 6 millimeter change in their blood pressure. The sham saw a 1.6 on a 1.9 uh, millimeter change. So the adjusted difference, when you're adjusting for some of those baseline differences that I mentioned, was a 7 millimeter reduction systolic and a 4.3 millimeter reduction uh, diastolic in the renal denervation. And I'll just point out that that change is considered to be clinically important as far as its association with long-term cardiovascular outcomes. If you look at the timing, the separation in blood pressure begins almost immediately, but actually continues to augment over time. And one of the other findings was, which just sort of shows just how poor medication compliance is, medication adherence in this trial was only 60%, which doesn't bode well for our patients in the real world. Mm, the best medication is the one that the patient will take. So that's pretty fascinating, Kieran. That's a marked change in a pretty short window of time. Are there any uh, points or caveats, anything you wanted to specifically highlight about this trial? Sure. So remember, this is an interim analysis that was pre-planned, but it's akin to stopping a trial early, which we've seen a lot happen uh, on the trials we've covered here. So you know, this, this may overestimate the benefits that we see, and they may be attenuated over time. And the corollary to that is that a small sample size may not be powered to detect differences in the safety endpoints they're measuring. Although I will say at this interim analysis, there were no observed major safety outcomes. So 
there's no difference because there's none to observe. Well, the authors do posit that the results that you see may actually be more impressive over time as the systemic sympathetic tone resets and settles out. So as the if you were following these patients for longer, they, they might actually have improved blood pressure control than the six-month time period. And I did mention that the difference was clinically meaningful. And, you know, to really measure that as a true cardiovascular outcome, you're going to need much longer follow-up. And given the fact that the sample size in this trial is only 500 patients or just under under 500 patients, it's probably impossible to actually achieve a measured difference between cardiovascular outcomes in this particular population. So I think we have to accept the surrogate of blood pressure change for now. Yeah, I agree with you, Kieran. Even if it is pre-specified, something about publishing this interim analysis just makes me uncomfortable. But I have to say, when I look at figures and I look at those curves separating, they're continuing to separate at six months. And I'm curious to see what happens when they follow them further, if, if the results end up being even more profound. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. So just to summarize then, tell us what is your takeaway from this article? Well, I think the conclusions are sound to say that renal denervation, at least in this interim analysis, in the setting of difficult to control blood pressure, despite the use of medications, appears to be both safe and efficacious in the treatment of hypertension. As we've sort of talked about, one of the promising aspects of this therapy is its potential durability. And so we see that medication adherence is poor. We know that that's true in real life. So if you have a therapy that can actually negate the need for medications or minimize the need for medications, and it's a one-time deal, that's actually quite a promising therapy for people who have difficulty with medication adherence. Nevertheless, adherence is still obviously a major problem, and perhaps our continued efforts should focus on how to improve this particular aspect of hypertension management. And only time will tell the final results of this trial, and as they complete it to their 467 patients, how truly how renal denervation may be introduced into clinical practice will be yet to be seen. Wow, so denervation may end up being back on the table. Indeed, and I'm not sure if people will buy into it immediately after one trial, despite the fact that all of these previous trials have not shown a benefit, but it may start to generate more uh, future study into it as well, and so... It's, uh, it will be interesting. Fair enough. I will wait and see, but uh, I will wait with bated breath. Yeah. Certainly not going to change my practice at this present time, but it's definitely got me thinking about it, and I'll keep an eye on the spiral on and off med trials as they complete. Well, Paxson, great show. I love having you on it. We always have a great discussion, but it's now time for my favorite part of the show to discuss different parts of medical literature. We're going to talk about what we're reading about. And Paxton, what are you reading about this week? Uh, Thanks, Kieran. So an interesting article caught my eye this week um, from the Washington Post. We hear a lot about the rising uh, economic impact of China and how it's rivaling that of the US and of the European Union. But what we don't talk about as much is the academic climate in China and how it's on the rise. So I read an article this week from the Washington Post entitled China Increasingly Challenges American Dominance of Science. And it actually paints a really fascinating picture of the rise of science in mainland China. In fact, some of the really fascinating statistics in here I wasn't even aware of included the fact that as of 2016, publications out of China surpassed publications out of the United States. 
And uh, another number here that leapt out was that between 2000 and 2015, research spending in the U.S. increased on an average of 4% annually, whereas in China, it increased on an average of 18% per year over those 15 years. So they really paint a picture of, of the research machine in China rising rapidly. And who knows, maybe you and I better start brushing up on our Cantonese. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I actually thought about this recently, too, with, you know, there's been some major practice changing articles and studies that have been published out of uh, out of China. And they have, you know, three or four times the population of the U.S. So as their economy matures, there's no reason why they they won't be able to publish at an alarming rate compared to what we do in North America. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. I am talking about something entirely different. It was an article, a research letter that I read in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. And I got to ask you this question, Paxton. Imagine that you developed C. difficile in hospital and your doctor then came to you and said, I'm not going to give you antibiotics. I'm actually... I want you to take these stool pills. I want you to swallow poop. What would you think? Absolutely. <laughs> you would you would just do it unwittingly because your doctor told you to. Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I don't know what I would do. I might think this doctor is crazy. But it turns out that investigators in Norway are doing just that in a randomized trial of right now it's only 20 patients. It's very small. These patients had C. difficile infection as their, for their very first time. And they are randomizing, literally, people to fecal transplant and, uh, and to metronidazole, uh, sort of a standard treatment for mild to moderate uh, C. difficile. And they found that nearly 80% of individuals in the fecal transplant group compared to 45% of individuals in the metronidazole group achieved a full response to treatment. So, I mean, these are small numbers, certainly, but there is a lot of promise in the poop, I would say. I'd like to say that my answer was because I do everything that my doctor says unquestioningly. But in fact, there's actually an ID doc here in Vancouver who's doing some similar experiments. So uh, he's also shown great promise. Ah, fantastic. Truth be told, I also covered this because I thought my kids would find it funny that I said poop on the air. But hey, every once in a while, you got to stoop that low. <laughs> All right, Paxton, great show. Great having you. Great talking to you. And we look forward to seeing you next time on The Roundtable. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks, Karen. The Roundtable is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundtable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.